This morning, Luke 21 and verse 36. Luke 21, 36. We're going to continue our study of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, I know sometimes it might seem like we're beating prophecy to death, but I think we're living in the last days and we need to constantly be reminded of it. And these are passages that go with their, their exhortation. And they apply to any time frame in the history of the church. I mean, they literally do. We're supposed to be on guard. We're supposed to be on the alert. We're supposed to be spiritually awake. But especially whenever we're living in the the last generation. Now, when is Jesus coming back? When he's ready. Okay? There's no dates that you can put on it. Sometimes it's... It's been easy for date setters throughout the history of the world to say, it's going to be, and um, that's probably a guarantee that it won't be that day, because nobody's going to know the day or the hour. For some, it's going to come like a thief, and that's the verses that we're talking about. But for the, the rest of us, I hope we really, whenever the trumpet sounds, we sing, we sing hallelujah, and we say hallelujah, we know what it is, we're ready for it, and not manna. Man is what the Jews said out in the desert, and it means what is it in the Hebrew. So I hope we are truly ready. We know that, we know that it's coming, and as it, as it approaches, there are signs that keep getting closer, and we need to pay attention to them. Now, before we, we do this, before we start uh, Luke 21, 36, you'll see some of the blanks filled in, because that's how far we got last week. And we're going to... to Spend some more time on, on this verse because it's, it's just loaded with information packed into a few words. So let's take a few moments for prayer. We know that the Holy Spirit is the real teacher. He is the one Jesus told his disciples who would lead us into all truth and show us things to come. Now, as a seeker of truth, we should make it an honest part of our prayer that we want to know the truth, and Lord, if I head off down a, the wrong direction or down a rabbit hole, please show me, stop me, keep me from pursuing the wrong doctrines, pursuing the wrong uh, attitudes, thought, speech, our thought, speech, and attitudes. I mean, that should be an honest prayer. That's looking in the mirror of the Word of God and saying, if I'm getting ready to mess up or if I have messed up, please show me. That's honesty before the Lord. You know what made David so great? It wasn't all of his sins. It was that he said, search me, try me, see if there's any evil way in me. God knew every evil way inside of David for him mating. But David didn't know. So that was a prayer that David wanted to honestly be able to have fellowship with the Almighty God. And he knew his sin was a problem. He also knew that the sin nature is good at blinding us. That's what it does because the sin nature is inherently wicked above all things. I didn't make that up. Paul wrote it in Romans 7. So that's, that's what it is. So we do battle with that. And part of that battle, sometimes we think we know it all. And we stop being students. And when that happens, the devil's got us right where he wants us. So as we study prophecy, as we study end times... We may have heard some of it before, but we're constantly to be encouraged. And the more we study, the more we learn. Seek me with all your heart, it says, and then you'll find me. Sometimes we can't seek him just uh, intellectually or academically. It says with all your heart, every part of your being. I surrender all. That's an interesting song I was raised on in the church I grew up in. We did it on a real regular basis. Haven't done it in a long time. I surrender all. I've actually heard people say, well, those songs aren't doctrinally accurate. I'm going, what book are you reading? <laughs> you know, Romans chapter 12, present your body a living holy sacrifice. Seemed like I read that there, right there in Romans 12. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Why? So you can know what the will of God is. And you'll know it because it's good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. In verse 3, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. Have the right view of yourself. What is that view? You're a sinner in need of grace. That's who we are. 
and the right view of ourselves is we can always learn. We are the finite probing the infinite, and we have to do that in spirit and in truth, and that's the way we, that's the way we seek Him. So let's pray that we understand this first of all, how it fits together with other pieces of the Scripture. Let's pray that we be able to remember it. Now, the older we get, the more important that prayer becomes. You know, if you've gone into a room and go, why am I here? What did I come in here for? Or found yourself in the driveway and you wonder if you're getting ready to leave or just got back. <laughs> okay, we need to pray that we can remember things. And we also need to pray for one another in that regard. I'll just throw that in. As the older we get, the harder it is to do that. But then above that, pray for wisdom. He lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and that's all of us all the time. Let him ask. He gives to all generously and without reproach. So let us remember this. Let us be alerted by it. Let us not be alarmed, but let us be alerted by these verses today. Let's pray. Father, you're so gracious. You uh, decided to bring us into existence, knowing that we would all be sinners. And yet, Father, you loved us with a love that we still cannot comprehend. But, Father, we know that you have loved us while we were your enemies enough to send your Son to die for us on a cross. And, Father, now we're your family. So that love increases all the more. That we can understand it. We can, we can sense it. And Father, I pray that's, that's what we would do today. That we would see how great a love that you have for us. That we should be called your children. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're bringing some conclusions together for the uh, uh, Olivet Discourse. And it says in verse 35, this, it will all come upon those who dwell on the face of the earth. We know that all these events, what events? The ones he's just described of the rapture, the tribulation, the second advent, the stars go out, all the things that happen during that tribulation and the events of the second advent. And then he starts telling, telling us, how do you get ready for it? How do you get ready for it at any point in history? Because God can bring things together really fast. Whenever he's ready to do something, it doesn't matter how slow things are going along today. Because he can pull it all together uh, in, in a heartbeat. I think about creation of the heavens and the earth. And I think he just went like that and there it was. I don't think it took billions of years to do that. I just don't think it did. Now in verse 36... He says, keep on the alert. We've looked at this. Our group, Neo, don't be spiritually asleep is what he's saying. Keep on the alert at all times. See, that's the when. See, the command there, imperative. Okay? Be spiritually awake. Okay? When? All the time. Praying. What do you do being spiritually awake? And this is the word deomai. There are multiple words for prayer found <clears throat> in the Greek and in the Hebrew, and they all have slightly different meanings. They're all about going before the throne of grace to talk to the living God, but they have different emphasis. Deomai is a word that means a very strong petition. So you'll see this word translated urging. You'll see this word with different different translations that indicate an urgency or something that is a very strong petition and that's how you'll see it frequently translated praying for what that you might have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the son of the man that's a title for messiah that's what it is. You find it all the way back in, in the book of Daniel, in the seventh chapter. The son of the man. Jesus is the last Adam. And one day, we're all going to stand in front of him. Now, if we're on guard, the result will be we're not weighted down. Because it's easy to tune in to the news media today and get weighted down with burdens that we, we can't handle anyway. 
We pray for people. We're supposed to pray for those who are in power. And I've tried to train myself, and I've not yet succeeded, but I try to train myself when I hear of somebody doing something really irresponsible in a position of power to pray for them. To pray for them rather than just get mad at the television because the television can't hear me. So I try to, but I'm working on it. And some of you, I think, are probably working along with me on that. But if we keep on the alert through prayer, we're going to be ready to stand in front of the Lord. Keep on the alert. How? Through an intense prayer. To do what? Stand in front of the Lord. Because we don't know the day the Lord will return, we're supposed to be spiritually awake at all times. Now, these are parallel. See that Matthew 24? 42 to 44, and that and sign that's in there, I use that to denote a parallel passage. That's how I mark them. That says that they're parallel passages between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and sometimes John. So that ampersand signed in there, the and sign, that's what it is. Mark 13, 33. So Matthew 24, 42, be on the alert. You don't know which day your Lord is coming. But it says, be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready. For the Son of the Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Now, even in the last days, some people that know better can decide that they're going to put prophecy aside. And that's a mistake, according to Scripture, to do that. Otherwise, he's going to come back and catch them totally off guard. Now, we're in the process of fulfilling our ministry, and that's the Mark 13 passage. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing is fulfilling our ministry. And you say, well, I don't have a ministry. You have a, everybody has a ministry. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're given a spiritual gift. Okay, at least, and I believe it's only one. Some people believe one or more. But you have at least one, no matter how you, how you slice it. And you have a ministry. And people say, well, I don't have a ministry. You have a ministry. We hire you to minister to us. Well, you hire me as a, as a minister. I'm a minister, and that's my job to minister to you. But you know what that job is? To equip you for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.12, if you want a verse to go with it, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to the purpose, build up the body of Christ. We all have a ministry. It might be your next door neighbor. It might be at your workplace. It might be, who knows, handing out gospel coins on the street. Might be. It, you have a ministry of some kind. So what should we be doing when the Lord comes back? Fulfilling our ministry. That's what we should be doing. Mark 13, take heed, keep on the alert. You don't know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. You don't know when the master of the house is coming. Whether in the morning, midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. He's like the head of the house that left people in charge to carry out what? A ministry, a service. And he says, be ready when the master comes back. Because there will be an accounting. Now Satan's thieves... Satan's thieves are out to take out our, are, are out to take our inheritance by robbing us of our resources. Satan, see, doesn't play fair. In case you haven't been figured that out somewhere, I'll get caught up with these things. I go through them and then I forget them. Anyway, <laughs> they're out to take our inheritance away. Now, last Wednesday night, we looked at some of the things that we inherit. And we looked at some of the eternal rewards. And that's part of the chapter 11 that we're in now on defending the faith. And what's the old devil after? He don't want you to have any rewards. He doesn't like us anyway. Because we've been sealed by the Spirit of God. And 
he doesn't like us anyway. Because everywhere he finds someone sealed by the Spirit of God, that's, that's a person he's lost. That's a person that he has lost. He's no longer part of his kingdom anymore. They've been snatched away from his kingdom. So he wants to take what other blessings we have away from the Christians. Why does he want to do that? Discourage us. You know, beat us down, weigh us down. So what do we do? Lay up treasure in heaven. Have a heavenly attitude. There are multiple passages we're not going to go through today. Add Colossians 3 to that. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Okay? Not on the things on the earth. It's so easy to get, to get weighted down with seeking the treasures of heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven. Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy. And where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, but where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. I love that passage. Get the right priorities. Figure out the right ways to do things. And then Charles Ryrie, I mentioned last week, said, You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's what you can do, because when you do good for other believers, when you do good for unbelievers and give them the gospel, God never forgets it. Never. And you'll be rewarded for that for eternity. Once you earn it, it won't be taken away. Why? It's a gift. And the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So, when it talks about losing rewards, a heads up, it's the ones you could have and didn't get. It's not the ones you've already got. Now, thieves can't touch your possessions there in heaven. Luke 12. See, the Lord taught this in more than one place, in more than one discourse. 12.33. <laughs> this is a good one for uh, TV preachers. Sell your possessions and give to our ministry. No, that's not what it says, is it? <laughs> Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make for yourselves make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, and an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Two different messages. Two different sermons, two different locations, two different time frames. Maybe he thought they'd, they'd have trouble getting it and remembering it, like the rest of us. So he said it more than once. You know, thieves want to take what is yours, and I have, I thought I caught all those. They do not act fairly. If you don't have a not in there, write the not in. Thieves don't act fairly. I've changed that, I don't know how many places, but it got copied in the wrong places, and if it's not changed there, thieves don't act fairly. That's not what they do. They prey on other people. You know, one of the Ten Commandments is don't take what's not yours. If it belongs to somebody else, leave it alone. In John chapter 10, in the first... Uh, 12 verses, I don't know if we'll read the whole thing, but it, he's basically talking about how thieves sneak into the sheepfold. Hmm. That sounds like they sneak into the church, doesn't it? And they come to steal, kill and destroy. They come to use up resources that are just there, not because not they need them, because churches need to be known as giving people. They do. And some people will figure that out and then figure out how to use it. Now, that's not the way it should be. And he says, be on the alert. And he's also saying there's going to be those who come in and these, these thieves come in to steal you away and they want you to go join their, their ranks and become a part of them. Now, thieves can be really subtle. But they don't escape the notice of the master. John 12, 6. Now he said this. Uh, this is. <laughs> this is Judas. That's in this conversation. 
Now Judas was accepted by the other 11 disciples. You have to think about that. When the Lord said, one of you will betray me, not one of them turned and went, yeah, him. And the way they fought with each other over who was the greatest, you know, they would have had they suspected him. So Judas had got into the disciples. He didn't fool the master, though. Didn't I elect you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He knew who he was. John 12, 6 says, it was because he had been anointed with expensive perfume. He said, couldn't we, couldn't, oh, you should have sold this and given the money to the poor. Comment. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. Judas had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now this guy moved in and sold himself. It's what he did. And they, he was so trusted by the other disciples that any offerings they came in to sustain the ministry of Christ, who was in charge of? He was the accountant. He was the wolf in charge of the hen house, wasn't he? And he used to steal money out of it. But the Lord knew that. Isn't the Lord gracious? He didn't sanction it. He didn't sanction him betraying him either. But he knew he would do it, and he did. Thievery has a temporal cost. Now, this is something that, that people have a hard time grabbing hold of. First uh, Peter 4, 15 and 16, he's writing to believers. He says, make sure none of you suffers. <clears throat> none of you believers suffer as a, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God <coughs> in this name. Now, he says, don't let the suffering be deserved suffering. Okay, if you're going to undergo suffering, be sure it's undeserved, because that you're a Christian. And that's going on all over the world right now. I, I know it'll come back, just a second. <coughs> It's been here before, it exits, and it comes back. The deserved suffering <clears throat> that comes along with doing things we know that we should not do. But how many thieves get away with stuff? Especially when a government no longer wields a sword for nothing or for something, and a government no longer prosecutes. Because that's part of what a government is supposed to do is protect person, privacy, and property. And if somebody's stealing, that means they don't own it. So they are harming someone else. So there should be a discipline that goes along with that. And it, thievery has a temporal cost. And some thieves say, <clears throat> well, no, they haven't caught me yet. They get bolder. They get more brazen. You can talk to Seth about that. A lot of times the, the arrogance is what eventually catches up with the thieves. They think nobody will notice them, nobody will see them, and then they pull something and somebody actually notices what is going on. So they deserve suffering. It could be a turmoil of soul, maybe initially when they start. But what about the more they get away with it? Where is that deserved suffering coming in? It comes in because there is a scar tissue that develops. If we keep doing the same thing over and over again and the person keeps sinning over and over again, then they no longer see it as a sin. And you know that brings a suffering with it that we can't, can't see. They're not behind bars. They're not making restitution. They're not doing all that. And we look at that. They got away with it. Nobody gets away with it. There is a cost that goes along with that. Now, <clears throat> 1 Peter 4 says, don't suffer that way. If you're going to be suffering, be sure it's undeserved type of suffering. And thievery has an eternal cost. See, if you don't see the cost now, it does have an eternal cost to it. It says believers can be that too, didn't it? Let none of you suffer, none of you believers suffer as a murder, thief, or evildoer, or any of those things. There's an eternal cost. 1 Corinthians 6, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not in, or that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now see, <coughs> unrighteous people, who's he talking to? Corinth. Were they known for their righteousness? They were the definition of a carnal Christian. They were walking in unrighteousness. They permitted flagrant immorality in their church. They were suing one another in secular courts. If you could mess it up, they messed it up. And he says, you guys don't realize this is costing you eternally. They won't inherit. They won't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. They may be saved so as by fire, as he said at the end of chapter 3. He says, do not be deceived. <clears throat> Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you fit into any of those categories and those are ongoing things, well, God forgive, absolutely. But what happens when people get involved in it? They stop confessing it. They stop seeing it as a sin. And what does it cost? It costs eternally. Cost rewards that they could have had but didn't. And he says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He's writing the Corinthians and he says, don't you know this? But he says, you are believers, but what's it costing you? Gold, silver, and precious stones, eternal rewards. Chapter 9, he's going to talk about a crown. That's what the cost is going to be. There's an eternal cost. Thievery has that. Now, to some, Jesus' return will be like a thief. Now, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. <coughs> the, uh, this is a passage that, you when doing a funeral, you stop reading just before you get to this passage. Doing a funeral, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 is the, is the paragraph on the rapture. Okay, we won't all sleep, we shall be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Okay, and we shall be caught up together to meet him in the clouds. That's, that is the rapture passage at the end of chapter 4. Verse 18 says, comfort one another with these words. Now Paul there is introduced a section on prophecy by the use of the term rapture, harpazo is a Greek to snatch out of here. And then in chapter 5, he goes on. Now we've been talking about staying spiritually awake, not falling asleep, etc. Chapter 5 carries on that thought. He says, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. What times and epochs? Of the rapture. They don't have anything to be written to them. There's going to be some time beyond Paul's life, and Paul knows that. I firmly believe that he, he knew that. He says, you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, let's see, I don't think the first century was known for its peace and safety. There was not a peace movement. The only peace movement, the Roman Empire says, if you don't subscribe to, what, to our authority, we will kill you. <laughs> so I guess that was a peace movement of some kind. But we're, we're told about a peace movement that's going to come out with the first horseman of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6. So he says, peace, and while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. You remember when we've been studying in the, in the Olivet Discourse when you see these things happening look up their birth pangs it's not the actual birth but all these wars, rumors of wars and all that famines, earthquakes, all that 
That's just the beginning of birth pangs. Paul has this too. He picks up this thought that some things are the beginning, but that's not really when it, where it is. He says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Why? Because he told them about the rapture in the last chapter. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. And this is a different word for sleep than in chapter 4. Those who are asleep is referring to believers who had died and that their, their bodies are said, they're said to be asleep. And they'll be raised again. It's a different word for sleep. This is a word for sleep that means to be spiritually asleep. It means where you're just waffling through the times in which you live. You don't know what's going on. You're not paying any attention to it at all. Don't care anything about spiritual things or doing the things of God or singing praises to Him or studying His Word and all that. Those people are spiritually asleep. And he says, Let's not sleep like others do spiritually. Let us be spiritually awake and spiritually sober. Now, spiritually sober means no intoxicants that's going in to mess with your thinking. See? It's not just about wine and alcohol and the alcoholic beverages that we think about. Now, that's obviously uh, not uh, good uh, under, the, under the Word of God. Those drunkenness is, is not to be done. This is not a word that looks specifically at alcohol. This is a word that means addiction of any kind, basically. Now, what can people be addicted to? Hmm. Because addiction is an intoxicant. That's what it is. What can people be addicted to? How about uh, how many car shows do they have on Sunday mornings? Instead of being in church. How about sporting events? How about ministry on a golf course? How many addictions can there be? Video games? Oh, where do you want to stop with that? It says, don't let these intoxicants run your life. Because intoxicants take you away from the word. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we're the day. We're the day because we have the information to know how to survive and how to live in a difficult time. Let us be sober. How? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. When Paul gets around to writing Ephesians six years later, he gives us the whole picture of the full armor of God and what it, what it means. But now he just kind of introduces it. And he says... As a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we are awake or asleep, now I love this, we will live together with Him. Whether we are awake or asleep. Now is this talking about physical sleep? It's talking about spiritual sleep. See, there's the pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, pre-wrath rapture, split rapture, partial rapture, and a whole lot of other raptures in between. I've heard of multiple rapture theory. I mean, you name it, we can come up with it. But <laughs> there's one rapture. <laughs> when? Before the wrath. You know, everybody agrees on that. Before the wrath... Why? Because of this verse we just read. When does the wrath start? That's where the argument is. Nobody disagrees. It's, it's before the wrath. He says, he says <clears throat> whether we're awake or asleep. And this is what I like because a lot of people say, well, only if you're worthy will you go at the rapture. We've never been worthy for anything. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed that? Tell me, are you worthy to one day stand in front of the Lord? None of us are worthy for that. And here is, whether we are awake or asleep, 
I remember a long time ago seeing it. Uh, it wasn't a photograph, but it was a artist rendering of the rapture. And in this artist rendering was uh, the old town square. You know, we've all seen those in these old towns with a courthouse right in the middle of it. And around the town square was a bowling alley, a theater, beer joint. <laughs> and then there was a church, etc., etc. And the rapture was happening. And people were leaving <coughs> from the church. But nobody was leaving from the bowling alley or the pool hall. Or the beer joint. Nobody's. Why? They were asleep at the switch. Were there any believers in there? Probably. May, maybe some backslidden believers in there. But the picture kind of indicated if you weren't worthy, you weren't going. This passage says whether you're awake or asleep. Now that's good because I want to be awake. But what if I goof up somewhere? Will I be left behind? Not according to this. <clears throat> it says, what are you going to do with this information? Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. You know, it's even going to catch some of the church off guard. When the rapture happens, it's going to catch some of the church off guard. Revelation 3, the first three verses... To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. It's actually a picture of the Reformation period. They were waking up. They were trying to reform Roman Catholicism instead of realizing that it wasn't going to be reformed. And so they were, had a reputation, they were alive, but they still did not understand spirituality. They brought a, a dead spirituality along with them. Many of them bought into the transubstantiation doctrines and the things like this. And that's what they were trying, all the sacraments and all that that went, went with it. Now, so you have a reputation, but you're dead. You're still missing out on things. Wake up. That's the letter to the Reform Reformation era of the church. Strengthen the things that remain. Some of them did. Sola gratia, the sufficiency of grace. Sola fide, the sufficiency of faith. Sola scriptura, sufficiency of scripture. Sola Christos, the sufficiency of Christ. They woke up. And what did they do? They strengthened the things that remain. Which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore if you don't wake up. I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So those that are spiritually awake. It's not going to be like a, a thief coming. It says, like a thief, he's not the thief. He is going to snatch us out of here and pull us away from this world. But he's not the thief. And he says, you don't, you don't have a clue. You'll be clueless in this generation that it's going to happen. See, by the time Revelation 3 was inspired under the Apostle John, the, all the other disciples were gone for 30 years. They'd already, they were already dead for 30 years. And here's John coming along and he says... Wake up. And he's starting to remind people what's going on. Now the key is prepare to stand before him. Prepare to stand before the Lord God Almighty. Why? It's certain that we will. So we'll be alert to his desires. Now 2 Corinthians 5 is an important, an important passage. Paul... Gosh, we went through the context of 2 Corinthians. He starts off by saying that you're comforted to be a comfort to other people. And 2 and 3 is about being changed and transformed. The end of chapter 4 is this outer tent is being torn down. Start of chapter 5, this inward man is being renewed day by day. Take heart, don't lose heart. And then he gets to verse 6. Therefore, being always a good courage. Therefore... 
This outer man is being torn down, the inner man's being renewed day by day. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Verse 9, therefore, here we go once again with the therefore. We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. What are we supposed to do in this Christian life? No matter what time frame we find ourselves in, He's writing the church at Corinth to do that which is pleasing to the Almighty. Live your, audience, your life for an audience of one. That's how we're supposed to live our life. What is pleasing to the Almighty seated on the throne? What is pleasing to the Lamb who took our place on a cross? What is pleasing to Him? To do know what's pleasing, we have to know His Word because that's where He's revealed it. Why? Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bama seat. We are, who's the we? Believers. All these goofy believers in Corinth. <laughs> when Paul said we, and then he put all. <laughs> See, we all, we ends. He's a good Oklahoman here. He could fit all that in. Uh, we ends must appear before the, he, that's what he's saying. We should understand that before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, after the rapture, what's going to happen? The judgment seat. Why? So that we might be recompensed for the deeds in the body. Hmm. Is this all about our sins when we stand in front of Him? No. Remember Tetelestai, it is finished, paid for. That's, what it's, that's not what it's about. Because you wouldn't be standing in front of him if your sins hadn't been forgiven. But guess what? What he has done, whether good or bad. Bad is actually the word worthless in that. See, because there's a good that glorifies God. There's a good that glorifies man. And the good that glorifies man is worthless. It's the wood, hay, and stubble that he wrote about in 1 Corinthians. That's what it is. It's not the gold, silver, and precious stones. We want, when that big fire goes in, when that, all this stuff, these works of ours are thrown into the fire, I'm sure we're all going to be surprised at how big the, bright the fire gets. I, I just think we are. You know, we think we're, you know, God's special little person. And you know, we are. He knows our name. He knows us inside out. He loves us anyway. Whether they're good or worthless. But see, we're all going to stand there. That's where the rewards happen. That's when they happen. That's when you get this crown or don't get a crown. This is when you get the gold, silver, and precious stones. Or don't get any, save so as by fire. But he says, get ready to stand there. Live your life accordingly for an audience of one. Make it your ambition to be pleasing to him. And being alert, being awake, being ready, being sober, being, not falling into deserved suffering on those things. It's a matter of love. That's exactly what it is from 1 John 3, verses 13 to 22. Now, 1 John 3 says, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Now, we're going to find out more and more in this country that the world, led by Satan and his forces, hates Christians. We are the restrainer. With the whole indwelling Holy Spirit, we're the only ones that, that carry with us the standards that are not supposed to be changed because the world feels free to change its standards all the time. They call it evolution. It fits in. Well, we need to evolve. The Humanist Manifesto that I'll read to you one of these days just spells it out. Morals, values, uh, ethics are all evolving. 
based on societal needs. Who determines societal needs? Elitist. They're the ones that change rules on a whim. He says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. We hold to the almighty God. And by doing that, he's the one that sets the rules. He says, we know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. I love these passages in 1 John. Because it's not just about our knowledge of the word of God. It's our application of the word of God. We know we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What that's saying is you could have eternal life, but you don't know it. Abiding means to make a house there, to live, to dwell the way you are. If you're learning to love your enemy, then you know God has done the work. Right? Because loving our enemy is not natural. It's not done by the sin nature. Loving our enemy is done by the Spirit of the Almighty God. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue and deed, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are the truth, and we will assure our heart before him in his presence. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because His commandments, uh, because we keep His commandments, and we do the things pleasing in His sight. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 9? Make it our ambition to do the things that are pleasing in His eyes. So being alert is a matter of love. Do we really love him? If we love him, he says, stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready. Now, <clears throat> point nine is going to deal with intensive prayer. De oh my, that word. You know, our prayers, after a period of time, can get really clinical and really clean. We want to be sure we got all the right words down. We want to say all the right things in front of the Almighty, and that's, that's all fine and good. But sometimes they get real clinical. We've just got a grocery list, and we're going to go through this grocery list in such a way that, that yeah, God, we've put this up in front of you, and we've talked to you and all that. It's not what this word's about. It's just not. This word is about being honest in front of the Lord and being serious in front of the Lord. Some people can say, oh, Lord, help. And others go, Lord, help. There's a difference in the attitude, the thought, the feeling behind it. And this is a word of intensive prayer. Preparation requires intensive prayer. Like one who knows he is headed to the lake of fire and desires not to be there. And if you want a taste of what this word is... Go to Luke 8 with me, and we'll close out on this, this verse this morning. Luke 8, 26. And it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who is possessed with demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time. He was not living in a house, but he was in the tombs. Now this is a demon-possessed man. Think about this. Because it tells you a lot about demon possession when it really occurs. Even when it occurs, people have not lost their ability to decide their thinking is impaired. Their, their uh, actions may be harmful or overruled, but inside still they have the, the ability to think and decide. Because it says, seeing Jesus, okay, he recognized who Jesus was. 
he cried out and fell before him. And he said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. That's our word. It was a strong prayer. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It had seized him many times. He was bound with chains and shackles and he's kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by a demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him, they, the many demons, were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. They knew what, where they were headed. But notice what happened. The man came down, came to him. Notice what happened. There was a, a begging, don't torment me. It had to be the man. Because the demons, that's what they do is torment. And so he's asking for that. He knows he's headed to the lake of fire and he doesn't want to be there. He says, don't command us to do that. Preparation requires re intensive prayer. And it's going to talk to us about what to pray about intensely. Different elements that we are to consider. Because obviously we're supposed to pray about some things. But again, this moves beyond the clinical. This moves into the experiential, the real. I think like Daniel prayed for his nation in the first chapter of Daniel. I think it would include what the prophets prayed for Jerusalem as they wept over Jerusalem. Jesus weeping as well. We find that these are uh, strong desires that they bring in front of the Lord. So preparation requires intensive prayer. Now, <clears throat> um, today, well, let's go ahead and close with prayer, but just stay there for a second, okay? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your word once again. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the challenges. And Father, I do pray we'll be able to remember and apply this to the praise of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.